Julieta Cusnín, aquí con la Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, bringing you noticias en español and in English. Música, poesía. Soy Nina Serrano, la Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, every Tuesday, 7 to 8. My name is Esther Mania, la Raza Chronicles, here at KPFA 94.1 FM. Yo soy Vanessa Bohm, aquí con la Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Every Tuesday, 7 to 8 p.m., bringing you noticias de la raza community. Yo soy Nicté, Crónicas de la Raza, todos los martes de 7 a 8 p.m. This is Maya, aquí con la Raza Crónicas, every Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m., worldwide at kpfa.org, and in the Bay at 94.1. This is KPFA or KPFB, Berkeley or KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock time now for Cover to Cover. Today's Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Please stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is April Fool's Day, and I tried and tried last night to think of something to fool you with. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I keep thinking of... Our dear prayers, he got it mixed up. You know, you know the uh, the little epigraph, little um, epigraph that says, "Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice." Sh- no, I did the same thing Bush did. Yes, <laughs> fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. In other words, we're supposed to be aware, folks. We're supposed to be aware. Don't I wish I were. Don't I wish I were, but I'm too old. I'm too old, and second thoughts are more than I can handle these days. It's all too much for me. Yes, uh, I guess you'll have to fool yourselves. April Fool, April Fool. Uh, April is, of course, the cruelest month, give or take a few weeks in late October. I had planned to do poetry today because uh, April is International Poetry uh, Month, but I found something that I thought was more important. Uh, I was putting together some notes for Thursday morning's morning show, and it was all about John and Abigail Adams. And I didn't get to the part where I compared them to Bill and Hillary Clinton. And then I decided that was just as well. I don't know. Carl Bernstein says that Bill and Hillary Clinton are one of the great love affairs of the 20th century. 
Now, um, hmm. I don't know whether or not you want to get into that. I uh, watched Chelsea Clinton on C-SPAN this week, and she's so sweet and so luminous. She's lit from within. Someone asked her if she thought her mom would be a better president than her dad. And she talked about something else for a minute, and then she said, Oh, and yes, I do think my mother would be a better president. Uh And yes, I do think that Abigail Adams might have been a better voice uh, than John Adams. But of course, I wasn't there, so I can't pin it down. Uh, I was looking last night for role models. Yes, role models. Someone said, if you had your druthers, Jennifer, if you had your druthers, who would you have rule the state? And I said, oh, of course, I would have the mother of the Dalai Lama. I believe she's now deceased, but I saw a film on television um, about the great mother, and it showed the Dalai Lama uh, with his mother, and they seem to be, as far as I can judge these things, the same person, definitely the same person. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, obviously, uh, uh, he should select uh, the next Dalai Lama. I believe that would be the 15th Dalai Lama. And uh, he should pick a, a woman. And then we could take it from there. <laughs> anyway, I recommend to you, um, in the current New Yorker of March the 31st, New Yorker magazine, an article called Holy Man. It's in the section on books. And it asks the profound question, what does the Dalai Lama actually stand for? (laughs) I always say, yes, I I sit for things. I'm sitting for things. I don't stand for things. Anyway, uh, there's a lovely picture of the Dalai Lama. Uh, It's taken here at Dharamsala, India in 2003. And he looks like his sweet, charming self. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, I guess he's 70 now. He's a couple years younger than I am. This article is written by, uh, I'm going to spell it, P-A-N-K-A-J. That's the first name. P-A-N-K-A-J. Last name, Mishra, M-I-N. S-H-R-A, Holy Man. And, of course, it's a book review. The book that I have on order, haven't read yet, is called The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. It's from Knopf Publishers. Ah, let's see. Yes, it costs $24. We're not supposed to promote, but I I think it's all right to mention the price. Uh, Now, I have heard the author, Pico Iyer, that's I-Y-E-R is the last name. His new book is The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. I have heard him on some other radio stations, and he seems to me to make very good sense. Uh, <laughs> yes, he, he definitely has pinned down the Dalai Lama, if it's possible to pin down this sweet man. I... 
I think it's just interesting that we're living in a time when so much can be known about individuals, uh, can hardly have any illusions about so-called leaders, uh, political or spiritual. Uh, I think I'll just, let me just read you a little bit, just a little bit of this article so you get a, get the gist of it. Uh, in this new book, uh, we read that it is easy to imagine that the Dalai Lama is just the plaything of movie stars and millionaires. Yes, certainly, like all those persons who stress the importance of love, compassion, gentle persuasion, and other unimpeachably good things, the Dalai Lama can appear a bit dull. <laughs> Precepts such as violence breeds violence or the quality of means determine ends, may be ethically sound, but they don't seem to possess the intellectual complexity that would make them engaging as ideas. Oh, well, I don't know. I guess that's my favorite precept. W.H. Uh, Auden's precept is uh, in his long poem, you know, those to whom evil is done do evil in return. This is what we know. Um... Anyway, since the Dalai Lama speaks English badly and frequently collapses into prolonged fits of giggling, he can also give the impression that he is, as the writer of this biography reports, uh, <laughs> not the brightest bulb in the room. Okay, now, that's not fair. That's just not fair. He, uh, yes, he has a simple Buddhist monk persona. Now, this invites skepticism on the part of many persons. Uh, it may be an affect. Who knows? Uh, I think I think what struck me the um, first time I saw him was that the giggling, so-called giggling, was simply like breathing for him, and it gave him a chance to reflect on what he might say next. Um, kind of a rest stop. Uh, <laughs> now... The Dalai Lama, yes. Remember, Larry King on CNN once referred to him as a Muslim. And that was the point at which I thought, oh, my God, uh, a lot of people just don't get it. Uh, he is a heavy-duty individual. Uh, never mind Martin Scorsese and Brad Pitt and never mind the, the movies. Uh, actually, uh, the Dalai Lama is a heavy. Shh, don't tell anyone. This, uh, let's see, this year, no, 2005, he gave a lecture at the annual meeting of the Society for Neuroscience in Washington, D.C., and this spring, it is, yes, in Germany, he will be speaking on human rights and globalization. Uh, I don't know uh, why people mix him up with uh, movie stars. That's just, uh, I think, a product of our celebrity culture. Uh, and if that gets him into the public awareness, I guess it's okay with me. Uh, the cynics say that he's just a very political old dude shuffling around in Gucci shoes. That's Rupert Murdoch said that, right? Christopher Hitchens, always positive, accuses the Dalai Lama of claiming to be a, quote, Hereditary king 
appointed by heaven itself. Well, now, that's mean. Christopher Hitchens is always cranky. Uh, He also, Christopher Hitchens also accuses the Dalai Lama of enforcing one-man rule. That's in quotes, one-man rule in Dharamsala. That's the town in the uh, Himalayas in India that serves as a capital for the Tibetans in exile. Uh, there's about 150,000 Tibetans there. Uh, it's kind of a, a little kingdom. It's not. It's not like the Vatican, though. Anyway, the Chinese government has denounced him as a splittist. That's my favorite word. <laughs> is that like? Is that like the divider? Uh, the divider. Oh yes. Uh, I think of. Uh, our clownish president, never mind. Uh, the Chinese uh, keep saying that the Dalai Lama is plotting to return Tibet to its corrupt, feudal, and monastic rule. And they say that they liberated Tibet back in 1951. Many Tibetans in exile grumble that the Dalai Lama is too attached to nonviolence, too much in the grip of the Western event coordinators, you know. Anyway, uh, the events recently remind us of the fervor that the Dalai Lama inspires among the six million ethnic Tibetans. I've been waiting for him to do something dramatic. Uh, even I am susceptible to that sort of thing. And I'm so relieved that he hasn't done anything dramatic. He's continued to... Uh, what is that? Caution uh, to, to what is that? Recommend the middle way. Now, uh, it is his 49th anniversary of exile. That's right. That's what led to the current civil unrest uh, in Lhasa. The initial peaceful demonstrations met with a predictably harsh response from the Chinese authorities. And it is true that all hell broke loose. Uh, Virtually all Tibetans have the Dalai Lama in their hearts, says a prominent Chinese intellectual. Uh, Their economic prospects and their traditional culture are undermined by Han Chinese immigration. And, of course, that uh, immigration is growing. The Dalai Lama himself is more than aware that he's outnumbered, folks. He's outnumbered. The author of this biography, The Open Road, writes that the heart and soul, quite literally, of the Dalai Lama's life existed precisely in parts that most of us could not see. He has an arduous daily regimen, which begins at 3.30 a.m., after which he proceeds, he told the author of this biography, he proceeds to quote, meditation, prostration, reciting special mantras, then more meditation and more prostrations, followed by reading Tibetan philosophy or other texts, then reading and studying, and in the evening some meditation, evening meditation for about an hour, and then at 8.30 sleep. (laughs) Oh, I still... I still laugh when I think he was interviewed not too long ago on television and they asked him if he meditated and he said, I don't need to do that anymore. I've done that. 
I guess he meant he'd done it that morning at 3.30. Anyway, the article goes on to say that this sounds like a lot of meditation and reading for a monk in his 70s, especially for one who, beginning at the age of six, underwent a grueling education for nearly two decades in Buddhist metaphysics. Now, Tibetan art and culture, logic, Sanskrit, and traditional medicine uh, are not, these are not casual, <laughs> casual arts. Uh, he has the equivalent uh, of a doctorate in Buddhist philosophy. Uh, the Buddha's last words were, strive on diligently. And even the Dalai Lama cannot presume to have reached a summit of wisdom and serenity. It is his fairy tale childhood that exalts him above most mortals. He was born in 1935. Okay, that's right. He's a year and a half old, younger than I am. He was born in a family of farmers in the outer reaches of the Tibetan cultural domain. And he was a two-year-old toddler when a search party of monks from Lhasa identified him as the potential reincarnation of the recently deceased 13th Dalai Lama. The rainbows arching across the northeastern skies of Lhasa were among the colorful portents that alerted the monks to his presence. In 1939, the child was brought ceremoniously from his mud and stone house to Lhasa, and given the run of the marvelously labyrinthine Potala Palace. The Dalai Lama learned calligraphy by copying out his predecessor's will, hmm, which in its prophetic cast is one of the spookiest documents in Tibetan history. It was written in 1932 when Tibet, after centuries of uneasy coexistence with its big neighbor in the East, enjoyed a degree of political autonomy. Mao Zedong's communists were still far from winning their civil war with Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. Nevertheless, the 13th Dalai Lama sensed that Tibet's isolation would soon be shattered by, quote, Barbaric Red Communists. Got that right. <laughs> this is uh, a quote uh, from the writings of the 13th Dalai Lama. Uh, this was written in 1932 in his will. Our spiritual and cultural traditions will be completely eradicated. Even the names of the Dalai and Panchen Lamas will be erased. The monasteries will be looted and destroyed, and the monks and nuns killed or chased away. We will become like slaves to our conquerors, and the days and nights will pass slowly and with great suffering and terror. I wonder how he knew that. Even if the Dalai Lama shared his predecessor's forebodings, he couldn't do much about them. He lived uh, perilously close to the dark intrigues in the palace. 
conspiracies had undermined his predecessors. Uh, Tibet's weakness was exposed to its overbearing neighbors. People knew about the conspiracies. Uh, the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th Dalai Lamas died young, some rumored to have been poisoned. Notice here that this is not a pretty world. It is not, uh, it is not Shangri-La at all. Now, the 13th Dalai Lama, the one who preceded our present Dalai Lama, barely escaped an assassination attempt allegedly by his own regent. He recognized his insular country's vulnerability to the highly organized empires and nation-states of the modern world. His plans for upgrading the Tibetan administration and army were thwarted by a monastic elite that lived off the labor and taxes of peasants and fought brutally to preserve the status quo. Well, wouldn't you? Yes, if you were the old priesthood, wouldn't you want to keep things the way they were? Anyway, in 1934, shortly after the 13th Dalai Lama's death, the reformist politician Lugshar was punished by an ancient Tibetan method of blinding. The knuckle bones of a yak were pressed on both of his temples to make his eyeballs pop out. <laughs> Dear me. The article goes on to say that in 1947, the Dalai Lama, then 11 years old, watched from the palace through a telescope as the monks shot, yes, at the Tibetan army. Hmm. I didn't know that they were, yes, of course, yes, they were violent at that point in 1947. The weeks-long battle had been sparked by the arrest of his former regent, it killed dozens. Finally, in 1950, he assumed full political authority as the Dalai Lama, but he had no time to heed his predecessor's warnings against Tibetan apathy. The Chinese Communist People's Liberation Army had invaded eastern Tibet and was standing poised to overrun the rest of the country. A decade later, the Dalai Lama and tens of thousands of Tibetans were forced into exile. <laughs> It's 1959, the exile of the 14th Dalai Lama, as commemorated in lots of movies by Martin Scorsese. Yes, the story that the Dalai Lama himself emphasizes to his Western audience is that of his initiation into the modern world, both its vicious ideologies and its redemptive knowledge of science and democratic governance. This intellectual journey is what principally interests the author of this uh, new biography. He's a novelist. His name, yes, again, is Iyer, I-Y-E-R, Pico Iyer. The new book, the new biography, is called The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. comes to us from Knopf Publishers. And the review that I'm uh, excerpting for you is in the New Yorker, the issue of March 31st, 2008. Fascinating background on the Dalai Lama. For those of you who are not acquainted with uh, his history, 
In any case, um, <laughs> the guy who wrote the new biography is a travel writer and a contributor to Time magazine. And he has written uh, incisively on the dawning of our present moment in history in which almost every culture could access every other. There you go. It's a new day. He presents the Dalai Lama as a heartening product of the same encounters between the old and the new, between the East and the West, that have uh, stung many other traditionally-minded people around the world, stung those people into a reactionary fundamentalism. It's pretty scary, all this new stuff. (laughs) Yes. He writes... In Tibet, the Dalai Lama was an embodiment of an old culture that, cut off from the world, spoke for an ancient, even lost tradition, he writes. Now, in exile, the Dalai Lama is an avatar of the new, as if having traveled eight centuries in just five decades, he is increasingly, with characteristic directness, leaning in toward tomorrow. Iyer, the author of the biography, marshals a variety of evidence for the Dalai Lama's forward-looking program. The Tibetan leader cast doubt on his divine ancestry, pointing to his premature endorsement um, of the founder of the Am Shinriko group, which released sarin gas in Tokyo subways. He said that he was mistaken, of course, and that this was an indication that he is not a living Buddha. He made a mistake, a big one. He is the most famous Buddhist in the world. He advises his Western followers not to embrace Buddhism. He seeks out famous scientists with geekish zeal. He asserts that certain Buddhist scriptures uh, have been disproved by modern science and should be abandoned. Well, I'm telling you, I keep interrupting myself here, but this degree of enlightenment is a little bit more than most people can handle. Uh, Anyway, the article goes on to say that in his public appearances before English-speaking audiences, the Dalai Lama prefers to speak of global ethics rather than of the abstruse Buddhist concept of nirvana. Doubtless, he doesn't want to put off the largely secular middle-class Americans (laughs) who crowd to Central Park in their weekend casuals to listen to him. But, okay, yes, it's also a reaffirmation of a Buddhist philosophical vision in which all existence is deeply interconnected. This notion may be why the Dalai Lama was early to grasp the existential and political challenges of globalized human existence decades before they were underlined by the disasters of climate change. Hannah Arendt, the great Hannah Arendt, wrote in 1957 that for the first time in history, all peoples on earth have a common presence Every country has become the almost immediate neighbor of every other country. And every man feels the shock 
of events which take place at the other end of the globe. Hannah Arendt feared that this new unity of the world would be a largely negative phenomenon if it was not accompanied by the renunciation not of one's traditional and national past but of the binding authority and universal validity which tradition and past have always claimed. Now, I have to stop here. This article goes on to explain that we have to get rid of fundamentalism and nationalism and that the Dalai Lama might just be the perfect person to inspire this idea. To thank Veronica for operating the board, this has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Calling all women and friends of women. Listen up and listen out for the Women's Magazine here on KPFA. The Women's Magazine airs every Monday except the last Monday of the month from 1 to 2 p.m. For more information, call 510-848-6767, extension 608, or on the web at www.kpfa.org forward slash women's magazine. Check us out. You're listening to KPFB in Berkeley or KF, KPFB in Berkeley or KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. Up next is Free Speech Radio News. Rachel Corey is the young American who was killed by a bulldozer as she blocked the Israeli.